or should be able to start. Hello and welcome to our webinar um, hosted by um, BNE on the future of gas and its prices. My name is Ben Harris. I'm the editor in chief of BNE IntelliNews, and I'm here together with an all-star cast um, to talk about the issues today. Um, as you must be well aware, the gas prices have gone shooting through the roof, um, and there's been talk that Gazprom is squeezing the uh, supplies to Europe in order to drive up the prices for uh, political purposes. But at the same time, BE did a piece uh, last week looking at the markets and the collapse of gas supplies because of Corona um, crisis um, sent the prices plunging. But that turned around very fast with the bounce back, and now the prices and demand have gone shooting up. It's become a complicated question. So I'm joined today um, by Christoph Ruhl. Christoph is uh, an old friend of mine. I met him first in Moscow in the 90s when he was an um, economist uh, for Russia for the IMF. And now he's at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. He's also a senior fellow at the MCBG Kennedy, uh, Harvard Kennedy School. Um, and uh, he was a former chief economist at BP. He knows the oil sector backwards. Uh, we also have Andrei Gademacher, who's um, another 30 years experience in Russian energy, um, former VP at, uh, at Lukoil, and also stints at Morgan Stanley, UBS, and PwC. Currently, he's um, running his own family office and also a member of the expert committee at the Central Bank, where he's working on corporate governance. And finally, another old friend, um, Roland Nash, um, who's been in Moscow since the early 90s, former head of research at Renaissance Capital, where he won multiple times best analyst in Russia from uh, institutional investor ranking. Um, today, he's um, a partner at VT, uh, VP Capital, which invests into Russia and has 25 years experience. So um, I'm going to do this together with Roland, um, and we're going to, to quiz the guys. They've got various presentations to give. Also, at the bottom of your screen, you should see a Q&A function. You can ask questions, and we'll try and leave 15 minutes at the end to come to those. So on that note, Roland, why don't you step in? Thanks, Ben. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, this, this, this question on uh, gas prices, it seems to cut across a number of topics uh, today, some of the hottest topics around in uh, global economics, uh, is the uh, sudden increase in gas prices because of bottlenecks as a result of COVID? Is it a reaction to the push for renewable energy uh, in Europe and the inevitable volatility that you're going to see in energy prices as a result of that? Or is it um, some ambition on the part of Russia to, uh, to drive towards uh, Nord Stream or, or having more authority over uh, the, uh, the energy markets of Europe or simply Gazprom pushing to maximize profits? Um, Christoph, maybe we can begin by asking you um, uh, for, for the backdrop to, uh, to where we are with gas prices today and your view on why, on, on why this is happening in gas, in gas markets and you know, how long will gas, price, gas prices be at these sort of elevated levels? Thank you, good afternoon. Uh, ben, good to see you. I, I was surprised about the beard. Uh, I wouldn't have, <laughs> would have not recognized you on the street, I think, after all these years. He has a beard and the beard turns gray. <laughs> That's how it goes. So the gas prices, I mean, Everybody who follows the news has heard many different reasons. And I think this is a case where one has to distinguish two different levels. 
there are more or less accidental forces as always on the demand and supply side. There have been delays in maintenance. There have been delays in the creation of new LNG uh, production facilities in the US as a result of the COVID virus. And it was difficult to assemble the large work crews required. There have been uh, outages. Uh, there has been a very long and very cold winter, the COVID winter 1920, which meant uh, inventory draws far into 2020 and lower inventory levels by the summer of 2020 than usual, which still haven't been replaced in Europe. So there is this inventory problem. And then on the demand side, somewhat less accidental and more systematic, there's a general increase in the demand for LNG as countries go away from coal use and as they try to find some less poisonous intermittent fuel when they introduce more sun and wind and the intermittency problem, sometimes no wind, sometimes no sun. You have to keep the energy uh, running. And so for that, gas is now more favorite than, um, than coal. And there is a systematic factor on the demand side, which is the key reason, I think, for what we're seeing now in the short term and on that first level, that's China. China has uh, an enormous increase now over the last few years of natural gas consumption. It starts from a very low level. So natural gas is about 8% of the Chinese energy mix, very little. Coal is about 60%. And so China is driven not only by the motive you know, of decarbonizing and, and all that until 2060, which they have announced, but very hands down driven by the need to get, rein in uh, local environmental pollution. And that also means a, a big switch from coal to gas. And that has driven gas demand over the last few years. And that's all a demand for LNG. But in the background of these day-to-day -day and easily explainable factors, which one just can sum up and then come up with price guesses and so are two really substantial developments which are useful to keep in mind. Uh, one less known and the other more known. I start with a less known one. It's the fact that natural gas is changing. It's not only increasing its market share. It's already the world's second largest fuel and will become number one in the not-too-distant future. Natural gas is globalizing. And what I mean by this is very straightforward. Natural gas used to be a pipeline fuel. Almost all of the, or at some point, all of the natural gas was transported by pipeline. And when you have a pipeline system, in the extreme case, you have one supplier and one customer. And there's no market in between. There's no way of finding a price by arbitrage and by competing and by bidding and, and things like that, which we know uh, from all other markets. It's what an economist calls a bilateral monopoly the supplier and the customer have to find a way to agree on a price. And for that reason, two things happened. Gas prices were usually negotiated and fixed in long-term contracts. And secondly, in order to avoid new haggling all the time, for simplicity, they were tied to another price. It's the natural thing to do. In this case, gas prices historically were tied to the price of oil. And so the gas market for the longest time in my, and I guess in everybody else's memory, was an extremely boring market. It was just about putting pipelines somewhere in place and the pricing issue was never an issue. It just was a long-term price fixed in the some degree of variance following oil prices. So all the music played in oil markets, once you had explained the oil price, the gas price would follow. If it moved at all, it would move at a lower, uh, lower volatility than oil. Now that is changing with the advent of LNG. Now we have LNG, which is the ability of freezing gas down, putting it on tankers and bringing it to any place in the world you want. It's like, it's like shipping bananas. You bring an LNG tanker in the middle of the ocean. It gets a call. It says, go to Rotterdam instead of uh, Manchester, whatever the price there is, two cents higher. It changes course, goes somewhere else. This is very, very similar to the global way in which the oil market uh, has been trading for a very long time. Uh, 
And with this globalization in an industry which is characterized by very high upfront financial costs, very high, very high capital requirements, very high indivisibility. So you build huge blocks of LNG trains and then ships, or you don't build them, but you can't really scale it up and down. These are all the ingredients if you don't have government intervention and if you don't have things like cartels in the market for cyclical fluctuations, which we know from almost all commodity prices, the cyclical ups and downs. And that's what we are seeing now. We are seeing the birth pangs of a globalizing gas market. And it has this feature that when you had not enough investments over the last few years, you now have a wave of high prices followed, no doubt, by a wave of investments and excess capacity a few years down the road when you will have another sequence of years with low prices. That is part of the development of the globalization of gas. And instead of talking more about, let me just give you one number, which I just found. According to the BP statistical review, the share, and to very little fanfare, but last year, the share of interregional LNG trade for the first time ever was larger than pipeline trade. That's a giant shift in the structure of this market from zero to more than 50% and something which is set to continue. And lastly, that's something which is much better known and people are aware of. The current crisis, of course, has something to do with the energy transition, the attempt to decarbonize fuel. Part of it is that also wind production was very low, but a big chunk of it, in Europe at least, is that we have still the good old intermittency problem, sometimes no wind, sometimes no sun, and it needs to be bridged. But the bridge fuels have been diminished, especially the Germans were fast in eliminating coal and then eliminating nucleus. Uh, and it, it turns out that uh, sometimes if you left, if, you know, it's difficult for natural gas to put all that burden on its shoulders. In the UK, for example, uh, the wind didn't blow enough and then they had to reactivate a coal-fired power plant after having been very proud that coal was eliminated from the fuel mix. And uh, this need to provide an intermittency fuel coupled with this carbon price, which is now starting to bite, which is going up to 60 uh, euros a ton in Europe, and uh, coupled with uh, the increasing demand for LNG from all sorts of places where it is supposed to uh, replace coal, is showing us a few things about the energy transition. Number one, it will not be costless. This is all hogwash. The people say we can do this for free. It will create green jobs and so on. The switch of such a giant system like the global generation of power out of uh, hydrocarbons is taking a long time because even natural gas, if it replaces coal, still uh, emits, emits CO2 emissions if less than coal. And uh, it will not, be, will not be for free. Secondly, it's going to be a very volatile process because there's too many moving parts and uh, it is not going to be the kind of smooth arrangement which, which people have in their mind when they look at the Paris targets and do their calculations and how many years it will take them to get there. And thirdly, it's fraught with problems. We have seen three, 400% increases in electricity prices in Spain and in Germany. And what do governments do in order to avoid a repeat of the yellow West? They start subsidizing. That you can do for short-term fixes if you don't want to change your system. But if you really want to seriously reform the entire global energy system and decarbonize it towards clean energy, you can't subsidize it, it's just too expensive. So we are seeing now the fault lines opening, which give uh, much more scope sort of to critical opinions in the future, I think, about this energy transition, which just shows it's not so easy. And all of that culminates in the current gas and then power prices. Thank you. Thank you, Christoph. And I want to come back to the cost of transition to renewable energy. But uh, to, to go to uh, Andre, do, do you um, agree that uh, 
this volatility and high prices that we're seeing on the gas side is due to the birthing pangs of a um, of a new global gas uh, market plus the renewable energy side? Um, or is it something else? And in particular, uh, Christoph mentioned that um, it would that you would see this volatility in a free market uh, uh, scenario without cartels. Now, obviously, on the gas market, there is a cartel and it's driven out of Russia. So if you could talk on that as well, it's... Uh, uh, it would be very interesting. Sure. Thank you very much. Can you see? Can you see the first slide? Yep. Great. Well, uh, let me show you um, this. Um, and uh, uh, I do want to start uh, where uh, Chris just finished. Um, and uh, I, I do think that the biggest issue that we are facing is ever-increasing demand from China, uh, but also uh, is the fact that uh, that demand has been grossly underestimated and. Uh, we keep, uh, and uh, this is what you can see here is uh, at the level 2030, Luke Oil team estimated it 10 years ago in 2012, actually. We estimated it at well, 430 billion cubic meters higher than at that time prevailing forecast of pretty much everyone under the sun, including uh, petroleum finance company, uh, IHS Energy, uh, and, uh, uh, and the rest of the the rest of the pack. We just took sort of an average forecast, probably about 280 billion cubic meters for 2030, which was fairly prevalent at that time. We put it at over 700 billion cubic meters at the level 2030. And uh, as you can see, the stars, uh, this is the forecast and the black line is, uh, is the real actual. Uh, the real actual has been pretty much going where the stars are. So funny enough, uh, you know, our fairly small team that we used our offices in Beijing, uh, in Beijing, Singapore, and Hong Kong, but uh, uh, very, little, very little, um, you know, compared to the capabilities of the biggest, the biggest energy agencies. But um, uh, ever since, you can see, uh, going from yellow line to gray to blue and to orange, uh, the uh, the consensus keep going up by 60 to 80 billion cubic meters per annum for the same year for 2030. And China keeps surprising everyone uh, with a higher demand and uh, with lower supply. Well, that's, that surprise is coming on the back of just a very, very low forecast to begin with. And that has led to systemic, uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, the misallocation of capital, whereas there should have been uh, way more pipeline capacity built into China uh, and with less uh, LNG reliance uh, and uh, that that would have caused way less pain in the whole energy of the world uh, system. And uh, this is coming back on the back of uh, European declines in uh, in uh, production. We all know what's happening with Groningen, but uh, we also have some issues in Norway, uh, but I did not want to go into it. Uh, Christopher knows it much better. Uh, but uh, this is what, uh, what the uh, globalization looks like. And that's what Chris uh, exactly talked about. And that is, you can see that uh, uh, with China and uh, Latin America and South Korea increasing significantly uh, their consumption of LNG, uh, it's basically being sucked out of Europe, uh, which is this. So bigger here, lower here. And that there has been a huge decrease of, uh, of supplies to Europe um, uh, with LNG. Uh, and that's very important. So obviously lower inventories uh, in Europe, not much lower, but somewhat lower and uh, a lot of concern about it. Uh, Gazprom uh, monthly gas experts, interesting enough, have been running 
in April and May, they have been at record levels. Uh, they have been trying to increase their uh, uh, supplies to, to Europe as much as they could. Uh, now, why did it drop in August? Well, um, Gazprom is really trying their best to increase production. Uh, but uh, uh, the problem is last year due to colder winter, Russia also used about 40 billion cubic meters of gas, uh, uh, higher number than it did a year before. And uh, Russian, uh, Russian storage is underutilized today by about 15%. Russia needs another probably about 8 billion cubic meters at least of natural gas in its own storage for safe passage of, uh, of the winter. So Gazprom keeps increasing production as much as they can, but um, they are um, working very hard to replenish uh, gas reserves in Russia. Uh, that is obviously causing a spike in prices uh, anywhere you slice it. Uh, and this is something that I do want to stop on for a sec. And this is what uh, have been talked about already. Uh, the blue line on the, on the right-hand slide is uh, an increase of LNG consumption by China, pretty much from zero, from about 10 BCM in 2010, to close to 90, I'm sorry, uh, 10 million tons uh, in 2010, to uh, already uh, coming closer to uh, 90 million, uh, likely in, uh, in 2021. That is an absolutely huge increase. Uh, and that is alone causing that big spike that we see in, uh, uh, in LNG prices, as you see on the left-hand side uh, uh, in the graph. And uh, one more thing that is important to, know, to notice, uh, China has started their green transition uh, in 1997 uh, as, as a state-sponsored program. And uh, from 2013 till 2017, uh, we have been witnessing uh, a, a huge shutdown, close to four gigawatt of capacity shutdown of, uh, of um, uh, coal plants uh, around Beijing. And uh, the upper, uh, upper uh, shot is from my window in Beijing about six, seven years ago uh, and on the streets. Uh, it was, uh, China does not have that much concern about uh, ecology but they do need to breathe. And uh, when you can't breathe and it's difficult to breathe, uh, it becomes political problem, not even ecological problem. And we are talking about only, only them shutting down uh, some capacity around Beijing, but they also do need to uh, in Guangzhou, around Shanghai. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very widespread issue. So uh, this is where uh, one thing comes to another and uh, uh, ever growing, ever growing, um, consumption of electricity, uh, which is a red line, uh, is being, uh, is being uh, as you can see, the uh, uh, blue line is uh, gas generation, and gas generation is accelerating uh, compared to even a very significant increase in total generation. So, um, um, you know, Russia does have uh, some additional capacity. I just slipped through that slide, unfortunately, uh, because, you know, I do not want to discuss it too much. But uh, Russia does have some more uh, production capacity. It could increase production, but um, it cannot do it. It cannot do it fast. Uh, it, it, it does need some more capital to be put to upstream, uh, upstream developments. Right now, everything that it can source, it is producing uh, and uh, sending to exports or replenishing Russian domestic supplies.
Oh, no, it's very important is, um, yeah. So, sorry, I was going to just pick you up on one point, if I could, which is, yeah, sure. uh, which is that you, you said that uh, Gazprom was doing was, was exporting as much as it uh, as much as much as it can right now, and certainly it is uh, it is keeping all of the export contracts that it has. But my understanding is that it could be exporting more should it choose to do so. Uh, through Ukraine, for instance, and it's choosing not to, uh, as you say, partly because it needs to replenish in Russia, but presumably partly because high prices for the world's largest gas producer are um, actually not such a, a bad outcome. Uh, and managing supply in order to maximize profits or, or, or prices, uh, I wouldn't say is unreasonable for, for, for a company. Um, and, you know, there are other perhaps uh, motives for uh, emphasizing the role of Gazprom to, uh, to supply Europe. Uh, specifically Nord Stream is, is, is one that people would tend to point to. So uh, I wonder if I could just ask you, there's no debate about Gazprom hitting all its, uh, all its uh, export contracts. It's certainly doing that. But I'm, 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 not sure, I'm not sure that it's exporting as much as it could right now in the face of uh, uh, current gas prices. Well, uh, I think it does. Uh, and uh, the reason, uh, you know, if you think, if you think that um, you know there is some conspiracy theory and uh, Gazprom was, wants to undersupply uh, someone on purpose, uh, then what they're doing is uh, they're they're doing it pretty well by undersupplying uh, undersupplying uh, China. Uh, right now they have uh, over 40 billion cubic meter pipeline that has been built and opened, and it's now I just came back from Blagoveshensk uh, where my phone kept switching in my Russian hotel was, uh, you know, kept switching to Chinese roaming uh, because they thought I was in China because it's only 500 meters away from China. Uh, and uh, uh, we just did a fantastic tour of their facilities and uh, the Power Siberia pipeline. And uh, I can tell you that that pipeline is only utilizing right now about probably about 25% of its capacity. Uh, so uh, uh, it's pretty amazing to me. Uh, you know, right now uh, there is a big pipeline built. Uh, it's uh, it has more gas resources, uh, but it's being utilized by only by a quarter of capacity. So seventy five percent is not being utilized. And uh, and uh, the reason for that is uh, um, you know. So again, coming back to it, uh, I do think that uh, Gazprom is doing all it can uh, to produce more. It's just that it cannot, it cannot switch uh, production capacity with a flip of the fingers. Uh, it's producing everything it can, but uh, you know, does it have more reserves? Yes. But do Russian companies have more reserves? Yes. But they have to be developed. You know, it's, uh, it, it, it takes years and uh, it, takes, it takes more stable offtake, uh, offtake uh, assuredness. So uh, kind of answering your question on that, but you know, I do want can to I, come back to, yeah. Can I chip in on that from the European side? Please. Because I think we can be a bit more precise here. It's true, Gazprom has probably vastly underestimated the recovery of demand after COVID and also not invested enough in infrastructure. But it's also true that as far as I know, that Chinese supplies are not coming from the same source as the European supplies. And we do have a sudden drop in the Yamal pipeline. Uh, and we do have one very strange observation, which is that Europe has pretty underutilized inventories right now, uh, under underbuilt inventories right now. But 
the big decline in inventories, so the big uh, not being up to historic levels, so it's 75% of the historical five-year mark. Uh, and the biggest decline is in those inventories controlled by Gazprom, not controlled by, by its European Union partners. So, so there is, while they have never violated any contracts, I agree, there is really sort of a noticeable decline in, for whatever reason, in the deliveries to Europe. And that has given rise to sort of at least one conspiracy theory, and I agree with Andre, the, the conspiracy theory that uh, Gazprom deliberately holds back supplies in order to push the Germans to sign off quickly on Nord Stream 2, I think that is just bogus. You know, Germany went through an election, and you will see now with the interim government, the regulatory approvals coming very soon, and then, of course, Nord Stream 2 coming in. Uh, but on that front, Russia and Germany are sitting in the same boat, and you will vote both of them here, but telling the Americans, we told you so, we need it, and here it is. But there is another theory, which I think has a bit more legs, and I don't want to put it as a conspiracy theory, but there's a certain amount of glee also, and that has to do with the fact that during years and years and years of low import volumes and low prices, Gazprom has been forced in the context of what I said earlier, of the globalization of markets and the competition for LNG, to uh, auction off parts of its gas at spot prices. So not to, it couldn't sell enough as it wanted uh, with fixed long-term prices. It had to establish a market, an electronic market for auctions and for spot prices. That was painful because Gazprom believes in, in, the, in the value of long-term pricing and, and that having that you know, as a sort of security for knowing how much you earn and how much you invest in all of that. And now, uh, when the current situation uh, started to become political and some European Union parliamentarians sort of accused Gazprom of deliberately cutting output, it was the Russian president who made this remark that, you know, they should put, uh, grab themselves on their own noses because it was the European Union who had always pushed for this idea of market pricing in the auction system with an electronic auction house Gazprom had established. That, I think, is, uh, is a politically contentious area where, we, where I would not exclude some politicking also of a large gas supplier, uh, you know, in, in due course. Not, as Roland said, to drive prices higher but as a warning sign you know, that this should not go on forever. But that one will not step, will not stop, you know, this historical development towards free prices, which is with us anyway. Well, I guess, I guess, I, uh, Roland, I, will, I, I would love to comment here, if you don't mind, hey. uh, because, because uh, you know, um, uh, Christoph is kind of playing his European role. I have to play my Russian, I guess. The thing here is, uh, is that he's absolutely right that uh, Gazprom did not like being forced uh, to go out of long, longer-term contracts. It was forced out of longer-term contracts, even though there are some still longer-term contracts, uh, about 30-40% of, uh, of uh, longer contracts. Um, but the issue is uh, that... Uh, uh, you know, uh, something I would disagree with, Christoph, uh, and that is uh, that was not done uh, in a very market-like uh, manner uh, by the European regulators, because, because uh, uh, when we had uh, longer-term take-or-pay contracts, they were basically serving two purposes. I mean, one was uh, basically a um, longer-term contract was uh, allowing you to, to develop infrastructure, uh, uh, and there was sort of built-in payment for infrastructure. And also, uh, you know, obvious uh, payment for supplies of gas. Well, that is a normal practice. This is uh, a market market practice in electricity sector, which is the biggest consumer 
you know, in some countries is 40, 50% of consumption uh, of natural gas is, uh, is, is, a, is electricity sector. So uh, uh, in electricity, we do have usually payment for capacity and payment for delivered, uh, for delivered, uh, for delivered electricity. Well, there is nothing like that uh, anymore in, uh, uh, in, uh, in gas. And uh, this is strange uh, because, uh, you know, we should have, we should have uh, some sort of capacity payment, uh, uh, as far as I'm concerned, reintroduced as part of uh, market, uh, market, uh, market pricing. And I do want to come back to one thing that Christoph was saying, and that is increasing intermittency problem uh, due to a green energy transition. And, you know, green energy transition is happening, and uh, this, is, this is very important uh, for the world, obviously. Uh, but we've got to understand uh, that if you have intermittency increasing in, in your system, you've got to have some sort of a backup uh, to, uh, you know, for, for the situation of that intermittency. And uh, in my sort of oil world, uh, that has led to significant increase of inventories of uh, refined products uh, onshore kept in the European Union. And there is a requirement for any importer uh, to keep a significant, uh, significant uh, uh, significant capacity um, of refined products. Well, um, we don't see those uh, in, the, in, in the gas sector. And that has to be reintroduced. That has to be introduced again uh, in terms of, uh, again, intermittency problem of energy transition is increasing more risks that, that we are facing today, less wind, less sun uh, and colder winter. Uh, hence, we do need to have more capacity for backup and that backup is natural gas, that's all. Thank you. Um, I think there's a question from uh, from Ben on uh, on pipelines. And just to remind anybody who wants to ask a question, if they could stick it into the uh, Q&A at the bottom, then I'll make sure or one of us will make sure that it gets to the uh, uh, to the speakers. But Ben, please. Yeah, I wanted to ask a question specifically about Gazprom's ability to increase its delivery to Europe in so much as this is the key um, argument at the moment or the key criticism. And the question is basic one is that between the different fields, Yamal and the, the MPT field, which is in Western Siberia that feeds into the Ukraine pipeline, how easy is it to send gas between those systems? I, I was reading that you know, the, the Yamal feeds directly into Nord Stream 2, but then getting it across to the central spoke that goes into Ukraine is actually not that easy. There are interconnectors, but as you said, because Gazprom is so busy filling its own domestic supplies, that those interconnectors are actually at full capacity. And what is the technical constraint? Because Yamal is the place you could get more gas from. It has extra capacity that was supposed to go into an S2 that isn't. But is it, you know, to what extent is, is Gazprom constrained about physically getting gas from, say, Yamal through Ukraine into Europe? Or is the MPT um, field sufficient in order to increase exports to Europe via Ukraine if they chose to buy more capacity from Ukraine's uh, GTSOU. So that should really be a question for Andre because he is the Russian no, expert. It is, it, well, but you said to me, was yeah. it by mistake? Yeah. No, I, well, go on, if you know the answer, tell us. <laughs> I, I know two parts of the answer. I mean, cl clearly uh, Yamal is preparing now for Nord Stream, so that, that that's visible and that has to be done and the pipeline has to be filled because it won't be long until it's operational. And then my understanding from history, if history is any guide, was that you don't need to rely on the interconnectors so that you can scale up enough to at least ratchet up supplies through the Ukraine considerably if you wanted to. But, and that's the big up, but uh, Andre mentioned before, what I don't know is that it may be that you would 
do that scale up at the expense of filling storage in Russia, mm. uh, which is also below the historical average. We shouldn't forget that. So if that is going to be a very cold uh, winter, it will be cold in several parts of our, <laughs> our joint house. But I think under normal circumstances, yes, they could scale it up and uh, increase transports via the Ukraine considerably. And I'm not talking about all the political obstacles here, just on technical grounds. Andre, do you, do you know? I mean, I was reading that the interconnectors are already at full capacity because of this big demand domestically to fill the domestic storage, and that limits the capacity of what can be put through Ukraine. I, uh, you say, I, I'll, I'll split the question. Um, you know, are there interconnect? Is, is that an interconnector problem? Um, I'm not so sure about it. Uh, but uh, what I think is important is that, uh, again, 40 BCM uh, increase of usage uh, last winter for Russia was a big deal. Uh, and, you know, 40 billion cubic meters would be a huge deal for any country, um, and uh, including Russia, despite its uh, fairly large consumption. And Russia consumes over 300 billion cubic meters of gas uh, per annum. So 40 billion is, uh, is about, you know, 13, 14% of total. Uh, and Russia has uh, an active storage capacity of about 80 BCM. So 40 BCM draw uh, is a huge issue. Um, so, you know, uh, again, you know, what I keep hearing, and again, I just spent 16 hours with uh, Gazprom managers on the plane talking about everything, and uh, uh, they are concerned about domestic uh, filling, filling up of, uh, of, um, of their underground storage. So is there, is there spare capacity through Ukraine? Sure, there is. Uh, there is plenty of, of spare capacity through Ukraine, but there is no gas uh, uh, that, uh, you know, Gazprom say, says that, that they're able to put uh, through Ukraine. And that's, that's the biggest issue. And whether the issue is uh, uh, really interconnectors or uh, or, um, uh, or physical production capacity, I would say it's probably the latter rather than the former. Uh, it's physical production capacity, uh, as we speak, uh, it's, it's seasonal. I mean, right now they are, uh, they're using everything they can to fill up. And like it's it maximum, isn't it? It's already record levels of production this year, this month. Right, uh, Gazprom is at record levels of production this year. Uh, you know, it's it's running. I can show you again the slide, and it's not my slide. It's not the Gazprom slide. It's uh, it's UBS slide. But, you know, there's a there's a related question coming in about uh, capacity in general, uh, which is you know what is the point of all this extra capacity, uh, Nord Stream or otherwise, uh, when um, when there when there's a lag in the development of gas fields. So even if you have, I guess the point is even if you have extra. Uh, capacity to uh, to pipe gas out. There isn't the ability to actually produce the gas to fill the uh, fill the pipelines. And maybe related to that, the role of um, oil firms in Russia and whether they could be filling some of that capacity if they were allowed to. I think uh, Andre, that's a question naturally for you again. Okay. Well, um, uh, for me, uh, I can tell you that uh, Russian oil companies have been usually getting uh, wellhead pricing at about 40 for zero uh, dollars per thousand cubic meters, which is very, very low. And uh, they were facing a lot of intermittency uh, with uh, uh, being able to put through that, even that capacity into sometime uh, gas transportation system. So um, uh, is there uh, uh, hints oil companies were not very interested in developing uh, gas reserves per se. 
and um, uh, are they interested now? You bet they are. They would like to do that, but uh, it's not, again, it, it does not mean that they have production capacity put on stream. Right now, Gazprom is going and, do- and knocking all the doors, trying to get any physical uh, any physical deliveries uh, they, they, they see around. But uh, uh, what, what, what would really uh, improve the situation is longer-term visibility uh, about ability of those companies to supply and at higher prices, and then we would have a significant increase of development, but that would feed into, into uh, higher gas production in, in the next year or two, not immediately. So, so uh, you know, talk, 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 talking about why additional capacity is being built if there is already an existing one, sorry, you know, there is an obvious answer, and that is uh, uh, in, in the current political situation, um, it's, uh, uh, you know, Russia uh, does not want to supply uh, more through Ukraine. I think it's, uh, uh, it's, 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 it's fairly obvious. But um, the, the thing is, would it supply if it had more gas? It would. Uh, because, you know, obviously right now you can make such huge money uh, in, you know, there is an increase of 15 times of uh, natural gas price. So uh, um, if, if there were volumes, I'm sure that uh, even Ukrainian capacity would be, would be utilized. But bear in mind, and uh, you know, I don't want to warn everyone, I think uh, we might have one more situation of, uh, of um, uh, uh, unauthorized offtake of uh, natural gas by Ukrainian authorities uh, traveling through Ukraine, because uh, Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian storage is, uh, is underutilized, is underfilled by 25 to 30%. They do need about 17 billion, cubic, 17 billion cubic meters to get through the winter comfortably. Right now, I understand their capacity is about 13 to 14 billion cubic meters. Uh, and, um, and that is a very low number. And um, so hence, we might have a situation of, again, of unauthorized guest offtakes, which have happened uh, in the past. And that uh, created to a lot of uh, Gazprom outcry, basically saying, we are sending in transit we're not selling it to you because you don't have a contract. You didn't want to have a contract. Uh, and um, yeah. In the context of this, this under capacity or lack of capacity from Gazprom um, the, and the Nord Stream 2, that it may be uh, split, that Gazprom will only get 50% of it. There's been floated the idea pushed by, by Rosneft that they get into the gas export business. I mean, to what extent do Rosneft and the other oil producers who are producing gas, could they put more gas into the system and transport it out to Europe? Yeah, I understand immediately the answer is no. Uh, you know, right now they don't have additional capacity to put into the system, but that, that's something that I do get from um, US uh, uh, United Supply Gas uh, uh, Operator, which is Gazprom. Um, you know, I understand that they're trying to squeeze it more out of them, but uh, out of oil companies, but they cannot immediately. Uh, in terms of longer term, absolutely. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, there is probably 40 uh, plus billion cubic meter of um, uh, natural gas that can be produced per annum, uh, but in, in Russia uh, fairly easily by, but that's by development of uh, new reserves and um, not immediately. That's, you know, we're talking about a year or two. Taking a step back from uh, the production question and on to uh, the consumption side uh, in, uh, in, in Europe. Uh, given the uh, chart that uh, Andre showed us of the decreasing capacity, production capacity in Europe, uh, do you think that um, Europe is doing enough to diversify away from, uh, 
from Russian gas um, and uh, or not even Russian gas. We don't have to use that. That's uh, it's quite an um, uh, emotive term, but to diversify um, its sources of gas. Um, has it done enough in the past? Is it doing enough now? And uh, also a question coming in um, is uh, whether the, the underinvestment into hydrocarbons in general um, is that is that contributing at the moment to the spike that we're seeing in, in gas prices? So, uh, Christoph, maybe you can uh, take that one. Yeah, that's a good question. So, just let me add a footnote to what Andre said on capacity. I remember when I was living in Moscow, I had a poster on top of my desk which showed a particular section of West Siberia, and it looked like at night taken from a satellite, and it looked like uh, like New York City. I mean, that was all the flaring. Oil. So that on the, on the topic of capacity, there's uh, with carbon prices ever become meaningful, there's huge potential, I think, uh, for, for Russia. But uh, on your question, it's a hard thing to fathom when you have for decades and decades relied on basically one supplier. Uh, but it is still the truth that uh, you can't diversify enough in this business. And when gas became available via LNG in large quantities to the UK and then to Spain and then to others, and then Europe, of course, switched. And uh, what the Europeans did in, in turn, so they were a bit cheeky and, uh, and, and they... Uh, Probably Gazprom was a bit offended by that, even though these are just market realities, nobody should take it personally. But Europe certainly thought it would be easier than it turned out to be because they did not calculate that uh, this huge rise in energy prices, which came about by the huge demand for Asia. So suddenly they found themselves competing with Asia and in Asia, there was demand for energy was much, much, much larger. And uh, there was new supply coming on from the US, which was very cheap, but then, uh, became very profitable. In the US, the situation is different uh, as a background from Russia in the sense that there's a lot of what people call associated gas, uh, which is uh, oil production, and then the gas, which is which is arising there, especially in shale oil production, which is also being flared, but they have learned to quickly translate that into LNG shipments and have built an enormous amount of, it's just a much more market-driven, flexible beast, and Russia have become a large exporter. And so these are the shipments for which Europe now has to compete. And then on top of that, Europe uh, in you know, classical EU fashion. So not only did they sort of gingerly walk into a new gas market, cutting off to some extent the old relationships and the long-term price stability with Gazprom. At the same time, in particular Germany, they decided to get rid of coal, they decided to get rid of nuclear. And so it became sort of untenable to a large extent if now there's a crisis and very high prices, that's homemade. You. It wasn't very intelligent policy, even though diversification is a good thing. And lastly, you're touching on something really very important. We are all used to think of this energy transition as some sort of a process of substitution. Yeah? You kick the old dirty fuels out and you get the new clean fuels in the sun and the wind. Then we discovered, and now we know it all, there's an infinity problem. So sometimes you need you know, the fossil fuels when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining. If you think that a little bit further, then you will realize that it's easy to construct cases in which a country can lower its overall carbon emissions by opening up a really dirty coal plant. These would be situations when that would allow them to have more wind and sun because there's more backup generation. Right? And why do I bring this example? Because now we're learning another lesson. With this thinking of easy substitution came the belief 
that low fossil fuel prices are bad for the energy transition and high fossil fuel prices are good for the energy transition, simply because the wind and the solar have to compete against something which is very expensive, coal and gas. That's good for wind and solar. That was the easy logic, the simple logic we grew up with. And that is to some considerable extent wrong as we see now. What we sometimes will need in this system where you don't talk about simple substitution, but where fossil and non-fossil really have to work together, really have to be complementary in order to improve the overall emission situation. What you need there sometimes will be high fossil fuel prices, because if you don't have occasions of high fossil fuel prices, you run into low investment. And this is to some extent what has happened and has contributed to the situation. I mean, who in his right mind will now open a coal mine close to the European Union? Nobody. And suddenly you need the coal and the coal isn't there. And uh, people like friend of mine, Jeff Curry at Goldman Sachs, are already going around and saying this entire energy crisis just reflects one thing, that there was a giant redirection of capital flowing away from old-fashioned fossil energy into high-tech sectors and so on, and the returns became low in fossil fuels and high-end technology, and that's what you get. So for the first time, this talk about an investment gap is not some OPEC invention related only to oil markets, but it may be a real threat uh, if we don't generate enough fossil fuels and then discover that the, subs that the renewables can't substitute for it. So and that's what we should learn from here. On that point, we got a question from uh, Yoki Taviti um, asking, to what extent will the gas price spike now drive up the, the other fuels, oil in particular? But I was reading this morning that there's also driven up coal prices and that demand for coal is going up. And so perversely, you know, the, the, the whole gas crisis is having the, the opposite effect and, and putting people back into business in burning coal and what have you. I mean, the knock-on effects from this gas price, what? This is what I'm saying. So you need a certain price flow in fossil fuels also, because otherwise you don't get the investors. This idea that fossil fuel prices uh, would be, you know, would be just disappearing in fossil fuels, this is just not happening. But let me answer your question. Um, it's something which I try to find out. The mechanism which is here between oil and gas is the hypothesis that if gas becomes very scarce and very expensive, people will not only use coal to replace it in power generation, but also fuel oil. And so it will increase the demand for oil for the heavy end of the barrel, and that will drive up oil prices. I think as a mechanism, this is correct. I have not managed to get my hand on numbers, on real sort of solid estimates by how much at which level of gas prices uh, people in Asia and also in Europe would actually switch and would have the technical capacity to switch into burning oil instead of gas to generate power. To some extent, this will happen, but we don't know what exactly the effect is. We've, after years and years of super low oil, we're seeing oil just touching on 80, and I've even seen people starting to talk about $100 oil again. I mean, is that on the cards? Yes, but you have, maybe, but you have to, maybe not. You have to distinguish. That's very different. Uh, the oil price is so high because in the oil market, you have OPEC and OPEC+. Plus. We have a political decision in April 2020 when oil crashed through the floor to say, okay, we cut oil production and we bring prices up. You have even a sort of very ginger, half-baked G20 endorsement at the time. So one part of oil production in, uh, in the US and so they just let prices go with known results and let the market handle the situation of this complete collapse in demand. Another part of the oil production market uh, was subject to, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, subject to production cuts. And the current oil price clearly is the result of these production cuts. I mean, demand is not back on the level 
of 2019 pre-COVID uh, demand, but prices are higher than they were pre-COVID. And that is the political decision of OPEC plus to cut production. As long as their spare capacity is ample in oil, it's more than 5 million barrels of spare capacity within OPEC plus. And as long as they continue cutting production, the oil price will be high. The situation in coal and gas is different because as we have just learned about Russia, there's a genuine sort of not enough gas to refill inventories everywhere. Same situation for coal. Uh, Andre, it's a, it's, a, it's a question that um, all oil and gas experts um, always have to answer. Uh, do you agree that uh, oil prices um, can be, actually on both oil and gas prices, this is the original sort of uh, question underpinning this, uh, this conference call. Do you think that oil and gas prices at these kind of levels are going to be sustainable over the, uh, um, over the longer term? Or um, are we going to see you know, shale oil, shale gas coming back on, online and, and, and once again driving prices back down to, uh, uh, to levels we've seen previously? In case of natural gas, obviously the current um, uh, pricing of over $1,000 per 1,000 cubic meters in Europe, it's, it's unsustainable, you know, it has to come down. It's, uh, you know, there's plenty of gas that can be produced at uh, significantly lower in Europe. Uh, I mean, uh, in, in, in Russia and delivered to Europe. So, um, you know, I, I, I am absolutely sure that uh, uh, that will come down. Uh, in, terms of, in terms of oil prices, um, then, you know, I would say that uh, there is a fairly substantial inflation that uh, um, has been already happening and uh, is uh, getting increasingly built into, uh, into calculations on oil services. Uh, and I do think that, you know, there we do probably are, we probably are at a fairly comfortable level uh, of sort of 70, 80 bucks uh, per barrel. I think this is where we probably should be. Uh, and, but, uh, you know, again, this is an issue of longer term uh, capital allocation. And I totally agree, totally agree with uh, Chris here uh, and that is, uh, there has been, and that is my subject, you know, misallocation of capital uh, into high-flying sort of uh, uh, tech, tech stuff and the absolute drying off of, uh, um, of uh, sort of energy sector of investment about a year ago, uh, that is, uh, that, you know, that is bound to uh, cause uh, some uh, shorter-term uh, pricing instability on, on the higher side. To, uh, to, to, to go back to um, something that uh, Christoph mentioned earlier, but a question for uh, both of you, which is the impact on, um, of, of higher gas prices in Europe on the appetite for Europe to, uh, uh, to invest into renewables. Uh, and in particular, to start, start subsidizing um, uh, energy prices, undermining the whole process towards uh, a renewable energy sector. Um, uh, we've got the, uh, this is a question coming in from somebody. There's, uh, we've got the, uh, the uh, energy talks, um, the, the carbon talks taking place in Glasgow uh, in a month. Uh, do you think that the current energy situation, the current gas situation that we're seeing in Europe, do you think that will have an impact on the way that uh, people view uh, those meetings in Glasgow? Um, and more generally, uh, do you think that, uh, you know, this kind of volatility is going to impact uh, Europe's ability to be able to move towards uh, uh, renewable energy, the cost associated with this to move towards uh, renewable energy? Um, maybe Christoph, you can go first. 
So this is, a, I have a clear opinion. This is one of my hobby horses. The fact that this energy transition, the way it is sold to us by environmentalists, well-meaning people, don't get me wrong, uh, and a real problem, don't get me wrong there either, I'm not a climate denier or something. But number one, it will be a hell of a lot more difficult and expensive than people think. And number two, it is not a simple process, again, you know, of exchanging the old out of the old and in with the new, because the system is so large and so complex that you have you know, currently only like three, four percent of renewables in the system. And you cannot you know, exchange, that, exchange that overnight. You need to have complementarities. You need to interlink fossil and non-fossil fuels in an intelligent way to move this transition forward. And this is not really in the public discussion right now. So to answer your question correctly, I worry about number one, some lessons from the... Let me also state, just to be clear, uh, these prices are cyclical high prices, coal and gas prices. Of course, the big investment they will come down and so on. Oil always usually is driven up by OPEC, then it ends in tears. So that also may not last forever. We have no shortage, very important, no shortage at all of any of the main fossil fuels, be it oil or coal or gas. So that's the background. Now, what, are, what can we learn about the energy transition from the current situation? Number one, there will be riots, there will be blood on the street, so to speak, and bar burning barricades if the actual price increases are translating into electricity price increases, just as it was with the Yellow West. And in order to avoid this, we already see what governments doing naturally, they subsidize the increase. They pay, like in Spain or in Germany, the incremental bill. This is something you can do if you have a temporary problem one winter, this is not something you can do to finance the energy transition. So this will become one thing, which is apparent how expensive it is. And the test is whether ultimately consumers will be willing to pay for it. And higher energy, especially electricity prices, are like a regressive tax. You know, if you're rich, you don't care. But if you make 1300 euros net and then your electricity bill goes up to 200, that is a real substantial part of it. So, so that, that's one thing we learned. Number two, Energy markets everywhere are becoming more market-oriented, more interlinked with financial markets. And with that comes higher price volatility. And that's also something customers are not uh, used to and, 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 and will have to get used to. And the energy transition has all the potential to make these uh, price adjustments more volatile and faster. Add a carbon price into the mix, you know, add all these ups and downs from the different fuel components, which uh, when you phase out coal and nuclear, which, which become increasingly sort of driven by shortage and too much and shortage too much, you see these price fluctuations, which will also undermine the support for this energy transition by simply calling for more state intervention. And that has never been a good way of promoting the kind of technical change the energy transition uh, requires. And then finally, the irony uh, that people who want the energy transition probably have to argue that uh, there has to be a certain basic profitability guarantee to fossil fuels. And then one has to stop with this nonsense of saying that companies should not invest, uh, ending up in a situation where basically oil and gas companies in the rich democratic part of the world stop investing and then completely rely, sell their assets to some cowboys like BP in Alaska who invest and produce gas and oil just much more dirty than before uh, and otherwise rely on big state-owned companies from, from a part of the world where this is government business and highly politicized. So these are the three sort of key lessons, the subsidy issue, the volatility issue, uh, and and the uh, let the fossil you need the fossil fuels for a time. People have said this, but people it hasn't sunk in yet. And so I'm basically skeptical that uh, much 
positive for the energy transition we come out of the current situation. Christoph, then can I circle right back to something you said right at the beginning, that this was um, the current spike in prices is the birth pain. And a point, a very important point, I think people haven't quite realized, is that the former link between gas prices and oil has been broken. And I think it was from last year that gas is now being priced as a commodity. And because of the advent of LNG, it really is a commodity. Like you say, you can put it on a ship and send it anywhere. But then doesn't that mean that if it's going to be a commodity like oil, then like oil, it's, which is the most unpredictable commodity of all, we're now, instead of having this boring business with two people on a pipeline, we're going to have the same mad price fluctuations that we have with oil. And that this whole thing, the switch trying to use cleaner gas is actually going to become more volatile and make your power bill more unpredictable. I mean, isn't this all going to be really difficult to manage? Depends what you mean, it may be more volatile, it may also be cheaper. So the oil price link has been broken to a large extent, but this didn't happen one Tuesday. That happened gradually over time as the share of LNG and flexibility increased. Power markets, uh, I disagree with what Andre said earlier, worldwide are now operating on the principle that you will have free access to the distribution network, that you have uh, companies running the, the running the net, the grids, and other companies doing the selling, other companies doing the production of, of power. And these are systems where you have price flexibility. And if you leave them alone, then most of the time they work fairly well and the volatility of prices is something manageable. And if you don't like it as a consumer, you go into a contract with your favorite provider, which has more stable prices. But if big things happen, a super cold winter or you know, a sudden energy transition, then you can see prices going horribly out of whack, which is part of any normal markets if big things happen. Uh, I am of the, of the school that I think this is essentially a more flexible and a more efficient system than the old system where we had where one producer owns the pipeline system, the distribution system, and everything else and can basically hold everyone else to random, simply because it's more efficient. I also don't think it's possible to change the whole energy system other than by following these market principles. You can't do that by fiat. That would be just a disaster. So that means whether we like it or not, we will have to live with this kind of volatility. Uh, Andre, um, what do you do? You agree on the inevitability of volatility in uh, in Europe, and is it um, you know net going to be a positive because you know on average prices will be will be lower? I think that uh, it's very important to build more capacity for immediate delivery of energy, including natural gas. Or due to increasing intermittency of uh, uh, the uh, new renewable sources, and uh, uh, this is this is something that we do uh, need to learn out of this uh, out of this uh, uh, real crisis that we see developing. And I'm very glad that uh, I don't have to I don't have to um, comment uh, much on that because Chris already said it all. But uh, um, uh, you know there is. Uh, there is one very important thing that I do want to mention, though, uh, Roland and uh, and Chris too. Uh, the the thing is, I personally was responsible for authorizing um, capex uh, and doing feeds uh, FIDs uh, for uh, for for example, utilization of by by gas uh, in uh, in Western Siberia. And I can tell you, uh, Russia has right now 98% requirement uh, for utilization of natural gas. Uh, for by gas, you know, of oil gas. 
And uh, um, it's not, not everyone is fulfilling that, but uh, if you don't fulfill it, then you're, you can be subject to very significant ecological threats and, and risks and, and, and fines. And uh, frankly, that's what we were basing it on. Uh, it's pain uh, to be building that infrastructure to collect that biogas from a bunch of uh, oil wells which are very low productive uh, oil wells. Bear in mind that you know, Russia does not have a thousand barrel per day wells. I mean, it has, it has uh, sort of you know, eight tons. I mean, average production is eight tons per day per well uh, in, in Western Siberia. So you know, collecting that little, little meager uh, amount of biogas uh, is a real pain. Um, so yes, you do see a lot of uh, flaring, or you used to see. Now, if you fly uh, through it, you will, you will see way less of it. It's, and uh, so, uh, you know, there is way less of a capacity for collection of that of the gas now because a lot of it has been done. And uh, what has not been done is grossly uneconomically. So uh, both of you, um, thank you so much for your time. I just noticed we are actually out of uh, time. Um, so uh, on behalf of BNE and Halcyon, I should say that Halcyon actually did a version of this uh, a week or so ago, and it proved to be uh, so popular. And we had so many follow-up questions that we decided to do another one with, uh, and, and BNE was very kind to, uh, to host this, uh, this talk. So um, on behalf of both BNE and, uh, and Halcyon, I'd like to thank both of you again. You're extremely busy gentlemen and extremely knowledgeable in this sector. And uh, it's been a privilege to be able to uh, quiz you not once, but twice on, on this subject. And I'm sure uh, there will be plenty of other questions that we need to answer in the future. So thank you both very, very much indeed for your time uh, once again. Yeah, and from BNE, thank you all for coming, Andre, Roland, uh, Christoph. Very good to see you guys again. And to give the magazine a plug, uh, you can find us on bne.eu, and we have a daily free email digest called Editor's Picks. I recommend you sign up to that. It's free. And we'll do this again. I hope to see you soon. All the best. Great to see the beard. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Bye. Bye. Bye, Andre. Take care. Don't freeze.